Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. I'm your host, Eric Fritschews, welcoming you to Episode 31 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast, otherwise known as MomCast 2010. This is just a little show I dreamed up a few months back to celebrate Mother's Day and allow our listeners to join in the fun with their own mom tales. To do this, a couple of weeks back we opened up a Mother's Day hotline to accept your stories, essays, poems, and memories about your moms, and the calls have been coming in quick. In total, we have 19 pieces for today's nearly triple-sized mom cast, including such luminaries as West Virginia Writers President Terry McNemer, our first vice president Kat Pleska, and West Virginia Writers Charter member Barbara Smith. Well, I thought we should start MomCast 2010 off by playing the story that first inspired me to do this show. What I'm about to play was recorded last November during the Greenbrier Valley Theater's Literary Tea Series in Lewisburg. One of the readers for the evening was a resident of Alderson named Elvera Denning. Mrs. Denning has been writing a memoir entitled The Lord Knows the Way Through the Wilderness, and she's given a number of public readings from it, including one recently at the Ronsford Library. The story she read for us in November, however, was one of the most amazing autobiographical pieces I've ever heard. Kicking off MomCast 2010, Elvera Denning. I'm going to tell you a true story, just it was related to me. My mother had come to stay with us in our home in West Virginia. One morning after breakfast, she and my husband and I were visiting together, and suddenly she began to cry. Brokenly, she said, I've got to tell you something that happened 59 years ago. Now, my mother was not prone to cry, and the thought rushed through my head, what terrible thing happened 59 years ago. Before I go on with my story, let me share a little background about my mother and father. They lived in the city of Chicago. My father worked in the Chicago stockyards as a livestock inspector. He was a very diligent worker and provided well for his family, but he was not a Christian. My mother was a wonderful homemaker and loved the Lord. As long as I can remember, she always got up at 4 o'clock in the morning to prepare my father's breakfast, as he had to leave very early in the morning for work. Because my mother was a Christian, she attended faithfully all the services of her Baptist church. She always took me with her, and my very earliest recollection at three years of age was attending Sunday school. My parents' names were Opal and Albert Pettis. When they first met each other, they were both school teachers in the same school. He was 20 years older than she was. And now for the story she told me. It was lunch break on the job. Albert opened up his lunch box and while eating noticed the daily newspaper lying on a table nearby. He reached over and picked it up and glanced through it, its pages, and then turned to the back pages where the want ads were. These were always interesting to read. As his eyes scanned the ads, his attention was riveted on a particular one that read, Herald and Examiner newspaper, January 28, 1916, Chicago, Illinois. Want ads. Baby girl for sale, two days old, rosebud lips, and the address, which was the vicinity of 33rd and State Street. Bad neighborhood. Excitedly, he tore out the ad. 
quitting time couldn't come soon enough that afternoon. Bounding in the door, he opened, pulled out the crumpled ad out of his pocket and held it before the eyes of his startled wife. Are you interested in this baby? She asked. Oh, was she ever? Had you not? They had been married ten long years, and she had not had her hopes been dashed by two miscarriages. And had she not all these many years longed for a baby to love and care for? Hurriedly, supper forgotten, they boarded the streetcar and headed for 33rd Street and State. They arrived at their destination and looked around them. Gone were the well-kept neighborhoods they were used to. Instead, they found themselves in one of the worst slums in Chicago. All around them, three- and four-story dilapidated tenements jammed so closely together that there was barely room for a path to the back yard between them. Poverty was apparent all around them. There were no grassy lawns in front of the houses, only trampled dirt in the small space between the sidewalks and the houses. Debris of all kinds cluttered the whole area. Children had no place to play but in the streets, and they learned early to dodge the traffic in their play. Liquor stores were in abundance, and what few grocery stores there were were run down and trashy. In Chicago, a melting pot, pot for na nationalities from foreign shores, immigrants would form neighborhoods of their own particular nationality. Hence, looking at the faces of the people they met, Albert and Opal discovered they were in a slum inhabited by Italian people. Slums were recognized by Chicagoans as places of crime and violence. The streets were scary enough in broad daylight, but at night they were exceedingly dangerous. Lurking in the shadows and dark alleys were thieves, prostitutes, and dealers in white slavery. Murders were common, and drunkards roamed the street at all hours of the night. Feeling totally out of place in such an environment, Albert hurriedly searched for the address given in the paper. Finally, they stood at the door and knocked, their hearts racing with apprehension, wondering what they had gotten themselves into. A lady came to the door, and Albert said, We came to see about the baby, she answered. Well, the baby isn't here, but I will take you to it. She led them to a tenement building, going down a flight of steps, entered into a basement flat. A more cheerless and dismal place one could not find. Since the flat is below ground level, there are no windows, unless it be a very small one near the ceiling. In the dimness of the room, Albert and Opal could see a little boy, perhaps three years of age, standing motionless, silently looking at the intruders who had entered his home. Their guide led them to a bedroom. There on her bed lay a young Italian woman with a tiny black-haired baby cuddled against her. She spoke not a word. Her husband said, the, the lady said to Albert, she can't hardly speak any English. Her husband deserted her when he learned that the baby was coming. Opal looked at the little baby and suddenly she loved it with a love so strong it was though it had been actually born to her. Albert spoke up. How much do you want for the baby? The lady answered. Well, I'm the midwife, and I want $40 for its delivery. My father said, we'll get the money, and we'll bring it to you. Can you imagine their excitement? Opal could think of nothing else but holding that baby close to her heart. When they went back to get the baby, the young mother, with tears running down her cheeks and never speaking a word, gave the baby into Opal's hungry arms. Two months later, they went to court and legally adopted the baby. The midwife and the mother were there, but the husband, Michael, never appeared. The midwife told my father that afterwards the little boy kept asking, Where did baby sister go? Where did baby sister go? The baby had no other clothes than what was on its little back, 
so you can imagine what a joy it was for Opal to buy all the pretty little things a baby needs. Her joy knew no end now. My mother paused and then said, that baby was you. I felt as though I didn't belong to anyone for a moment. Me. Suddenly, it was but a fleeting thought. I looked at my weeping mother, sitting there all alone on the couch, and I jumped up from my chair and ran over to her. And putting my arms around her, I said, Mother, you will always be my mother. My birth mother's name was Elvira, but in Italian it is pronounced Elvira. And my mother kept that name for me. Her own mother's name was Elvira, and I just assumed I'd been named after my grandmother. My mother told me that as a little child, I asked her, where did I come from? And she said, you came to me on the snowflake. And there was no doubt of it because my birthday was on in January and it was no doubt snowing. I also asked her if I had any clothes on. And she truthfully answered me, yes, you had clothes on. My mother wanted to tell me I was adopted when I was five years old, but she was afraid I wouldn't love her. She wanted to tell me when I was 12 years old, and then she was afraid I wouldn't mind her. It always bothered her to keep that secret, and it made her sad. And the pastor said, well, wait, maybe on her wedding day you could tell her. But on my wedding day, she didn't have the heart to do it, so I never knew until I was 59 years old. Finally, when I was 59 years old, I decided to apply for my Social Security income. And then she had to tell me because she knew I would need a birth certificate. And so she gave me my adoption papers. How sad to think that all those years she was afraid I wouldn't love her and obey her if I had known. Instead, I would have loved her the more. I'm Barbara Whittington, born and raised in Putnam County and now residing in Ohio. I'm reading The Gift of Time in honor of my mother. As Mother's Day approaches and advertisements for flowers, cards, and candy adorn the shop windows, I wonder how many mothers would exchange a store-bought gift for a few hours of the giver's time, not time sliced thin and pressed between obligations, but time freely given without the hands of a clock to interrupt. Giving gifts is indeed a way of expressing feelings. But if time has been spent developing a loving relationship, it will continue to grow after the flowers have withered, the cards have been put away, and the candy's been eaten. Listen to a mother and travel into her world through her eyes. One short trip with her can reveal why she is what she is today. Patience and understanding can close the gap of many years. Every Mother's Day, my friend spends the day with her elderly mother. She hears the same stories over and over again, stories she can repeat backwards. She listens intently to every word, though. She believes no one can tell the stories quite as well. The special look on her mother's face is the irreplaceable gift my friend receives. Talking and sharing ideas can bring with different lifestyles in touch. Duplicating the lifestyle isn't necessary, but communication is. Triumphs are doubled and failures are halved when shared in the embrace of a mother. Sometimes a helping hand will make a mother's day more pleasant for some mothers. Lifting a pair of heavy drapes to a window that her hands can't reach or doing a chore that she can't manage is appreciated long afterward. Time spent with a mother doing anything is time well spent. I know. My mother doesn't want more cologne or another nightgown. 
she cherishes my time driving her to visit an old friend or out into the country where she grew up or to the church where she can no longer walk is my way of saying I care. I try to give her what she gives me, love unmonitored by the hands of the clock. Hello, my name is John Nagel. Uh, I used to live in Gilbert, West Virginia. And uh, my essay is called The Great Bicentennial Parade of Browning Fork. The 200th anniversary of the United States of America, July 4th, 1976, was an exciting time and stirred patriotism in its people, among them my mother, Glessner Nagel. The rest of the nation gathered in cities and towns and had their parties and parades, but what of our little village of Browning Fork? Our four-mile stretch of single-lane road held but a handful of people, mostly families of coal miners and sawmill workers. Mom was not about to let this momentous occasion pass without a celebration of our own. We lived at exactly the halfway point on Browning Fork, right alongside a small, scarcely populated spur called Katie Fork. Mom had become quite well known for her cooking, as every church singing convention and other fundraiser featured a heaping kettle of her chili. And she had sometimes organized small carnivals and things for the local kids, since she had five of her own. I'm convinced to this day that if there were a public office to be held on Browning Fork, she would have won it easily. But for the bicentennial, something special was in order. She decided we needed a parade of her own, and a parade we had. In a short amount of time, she had organized the most strange and most wonderful parade Southern West Virginia had ever seen. We had no marching bands. We had no floats. There were a few few spectators, as most of the residents of Browning Fork were actually marching in the parade itself. Imagine, if you can, the surreal sight of boys boys on horseback, men, women, grandparents, horse-drawn buggies, kids and their dogs, all marching along in near silence, waving their flags as they traversed most of the four-mile stretch of road. It was perfect, a low-key celebration from a place where people seldom celebrated anything, and all inspired and made reality by my mother. We lost the 8mm home movie of the event to a fire, but I remember watching it into my teenage years and reflecting on what an achievement it was to organize such an event. And I'm sure there are people still living on Browning Fork who reflect back on that day every July 4th. I'm Llewellyn McKernan from Huntington, West Virginia. Mother after Alzheimer's. She smiles The glove of her face breaks into a thousand wrinkles. She reaches for my hand. The terrain of hers trembles. Each black vein blurs. She turns over in bed, her body shedding like a chrysalis, a century of memories. I cup each white flake in my hands, like I do hours filled to the brim with her dirty plates, soiled bedclothes and body. Again and again the angel of death watches over her shallow bubble breast. Again and again I gather up from his dark corner the feathers he left. Stuffing them in a pillow I sleep on, I dream mother and I Hold onto the sides of a tiny gold boat, plowing the seams of a silver river. Sometimes I wake, and banked by its willows, I sit by her bed, 
soothing away the pain that, paler than her skin or mine, rises in a halo about her face and shoulders. Hi, my name is C.J. Farnsworth. Uh, This is a poem that I wrote about the last time I saw my mother. It's called Petals. My hand hangs from the back doorknob until wind catches the door, slamming it shut. The driveway is covered with petals from eastern redbuds, those Judas trees. I'm standing on the stoop in the same spot where you said, see you next time. I remember it was Easter when I saw you last in a linen sundress. You smiled over the illness, laughed about Eugene Levy and Christopher Guest's recent mockumentary. I remember your fevered hand touched my growing abdomen. Watch what you eat, but feed that baby well. Heart-shaped petals rock a through the air like notes of an unfinished lullaby. I remember you clenched the knob, see you next time, and then hesitated in this spot where I'm standing. You left the knob warm and moist that Easter day when I saw you last. Thin pink petals swirl around me. Some cling to my hair, others fall like papery cradles around my feet. Fingers just green of distant trees seem to reach toward a familiar voice. I remember today that you hesitated before you left in just this spot. Terry McNamer, Stonewood, West Virginia. Story entitled, Into the Quick. In the throes of the 50s when Eisenhower was still king, my dear friends at Nestle's in an unending quest to appease my incessant yearning for blessed flavors invented a new product. Much like the quick way they had invented to make chocolate milk, it was instead a way to make strawberry-flavored milk. Its name was, incredulous as it sounds, Strawberry Quick. Modern chemistry in the dark ages? I think not. I saw it on the television, where in the grain and exact color of the evening newspaper, it heralded the new product. Black and white television is probably the golden age of alliteration, a time when the announcer painted color and texture with a voice. The announcers of the age of radio could give you a glimpse, but television showed the stake, and when the announcers were through with you, drool covered your chin. And that is why I couldn't wait to see the thick pink froth atop my own ice-cold glass of strawberry quick. When the local A&P supermarket finally stopped this ambrosia, my dear mother purchased it. As I saw it emerge from the bag, I was shocked. Why isn't it double-bagged in the 20-weight bulletproof craft paper bags like they use to protect ice cream? Those idiots, I thought, I watched helplessly as it sat there among mediocre vegetable and can. After the excitement faded, Mom retired to the scratchy soft chair for her warmed coffee and a menthol. I quietly reentered the kitchen. I opened the metal cabinet and reached in among the cans of powdery stuff until I felt the familiar lid. I placed the can on the counter and quickly poured a glass of milk, replaced the milk pitcher, then opened the drawer and withdrew a tablespoon, a multi-purpose instrument that would open the odd container, deliver an ample serving, and blend the concoction. Opening the metal lid was like taking the hubcap off of a 54 DeSoto because when the lid came off, came free, it was with a screeching pop that could only be duplicated by the Tin Man of Oz if he suffered from flatulence. I imagined a nasty scrifunk and Dorothy frantically oiling his backside, but let's get back to the kitchen, shall we? I coughed to cover the noise as the pink dust spewed from the can onto the porcelain counter. 
with tongue and wetted finger, I removed the evidence as quickly as the drug dealers on Miami Vice. Yum. With the counter clean and the spoon poised, I removed a veritable mound of the dust from the awkward opening and watched it enter the milk as gracefully as an Olympic diver. After replacing all of the evidence and with only a tweak from the tin man, I began whipping the ingredients as quietly as possible, not wanting Mom to think I might spoil my appetite, a phrase I never really understood. After sufficient mixing, I raised the vessel proudly, my mouth cradling the curve of the glass. I gulped. Jesus Christ, I said. Suddenly my head snapped sharply to the right. My sinuses opened and tears clouded my view. It would take another ten years and the help from Scotty from Star Trek before I understood how my mom made it from the living room, down the hallway, and into the kitchen in only an instant. What did you say, she asked sternly. Jesus Christ, I answered meekly. My head snapped suddenly to the left. My sinuses were completely open at this point. Why did you say that, she asked as deadpan as Joe Friday. I held up the glass. She took the glass from my hand and took a generous gulp. Jesus Christ, she blurts, then slaps me again. When my father came in from work two hours later, I was sitting with my face in the corner. What's he in for, he asked. Mixing Nestle's quick with spoiled buttermilk and vulgarity, she replied. From that day forward, my Sunday school teacher thought I was a slow learner, for when she asked who God's son was, I would shrug, look around, and then reply, I don't know. My name is Kate Dooley, and I was born and raised in Richwood, West Virginia. This is a poem I wrote for my mom, Grace Peak, who lived on the south side of Richwood. It's called Great Jelly Witches because she was really good at making grape jelly. She made it out of wild grapes, and she'd make biscuits to eat with it. A porch where drunkards hid their wine became our place to rest, those long walks home from town. Kill shadows on valley streets hid half-told tales of when you were young, and you were young then, but I was too young to know. Things you gave, you gave quickly, before the gods discovered misplaced bounty in our hands. Moments held long, Mid-afternoons crawled, no wind breathed. On nights when single light bulbs lit entire rooms and nightwood sounds shoved dark against the glass, you oddly wondered why we weren't other people, in houses with grassed-in yards and soft curtains. We startled to bodiless footsteps on dark porches, rocking chairs that creaked alone, and doors that rattled with no one there. Our nearest neighbors were shadows of trees. You are in my mind, Mama with grape jelly witches and Orion nights, singing hymns as if you mean never to be fooled, the humming beneath your breath, an invocation you've left me to learn. Being small and insubstantial was a talent you honed, nourishing as water, solid as wood smoke. Paradise is a clean floor, and flowers in jars, and hot grape jelly, the most solid thing, the defiant pop of the lids, one by one. This is Susan Devan. I live in Romney, Hampshire County. This is a an essay about my mother. When I was a very little girl, she used to take me to the Soldiers' Home Park in Washington, D.C., near our home. And this is a story about that. It's called Goldilocks Redux, 1947. Mommy promised to take me to the Three Bears Cottage again this morning. Every time we go there, the bears are not home. 
but maybe this time will be different. She said that winter is over and spring is here, so they will be awake. I hope she's right. The woods where they live are in the city park, just a little walk from our house. I have to hold Mommy's hand as we cross the street. After smelling the traffic and hearing the noise, it is always great to be in the quiet woods. There the violets and little blue Quaker lady flowers will be blooming. The air will smell as sweet as Mommy's perfume that she only wears once in a while when she plays sad records and dances alone in the living room at night. Sometimes we even see animals like a bunny or a chipmunk, but never the bears. Their house is tiny and green, just big enough for Mommy and me, so I don't understand how Goldilocks and all three bears can fit in there. We always stand and watch it from a little bit far away because I think bears might be dangerous, especially if they find a little girl peeking in their window. After all, look what happened to Goldilocks. I don't care anything about Goldilocks. I have seen little blonde girls before, and she sounds sort of dumb. I really, really want to see the bears, though. We have taken this walk for years, or at least since last spring when I was only three and a half. Now I'm a big girl and not afraid to look in the window. The tall grass is cool and soft on my legs. I hold Mommy's hand just a little tighter, but don't let her know that my heart is beating faster. She doesn't say anything at all, but lets go of my hand and waits while I go ahead alone. I think maybe she is a little scared, too. On tiptoe, I go up to the window and put my face against it. Something is wrong. There is no furniture. No curtains hang at the window, no chairs or beds or bowls of porridge or anywhere to be seen. The cute little greenhouse is packed with garden tools and stuff, with no room for bears or little girls. It was never true. I turn and look at Mommy. She has a really odd look on her face. There never were any bears here, were there, I ask. There could have been, she answers. Hey, this is Tim Armentrout. This is Poem for My Mother After an Early Spring Storm. Today is equal to the brilliance of every other today, perhaps grayer, but the drizzle has ceased, and it hits me that I have never written a poem for you who taught me that language was a confrontation I could win, that someone out there is waiting to silence us if we let them so I have been lifting my voice since fifth grade when you helped me win the county social studies fair with a project on censorship. I'm speaking now to say thank you for teaching me that certain situations merit swearing, like when I was eight and asked if I could say the S word after the neighbor's house burned down. You rolled your eyes half laughing and said, yes. Years later, as New York filled with smoke, I didn't know what to say, but I kept talking as they tried harder to keep us quiet, and I kept writing, channeling all those things Dad shouts at the TV onto paper into the air so others understand we must bring out the silences. Howdy, West Virginia writers. My name is Diane Tarantini. I was born and raised in Huntington, West Virginia, but I now live in Morgantown. This piece is called Reaping and Sowing. I remember hearing the Cats in the Cradle song for the first time and thinking, that's going to be you someday, Mom, the second half of the song. See, my mom hasn't figured it out yet, but she's reaping what she sowed. 
As far back as I can remember, she was pushing me out of the nest. Here's how you braid your hair. Now you can do it yourself every morning. This is the way you do laundry. Now you can do your own every Saturday. When I graduated college, she said, go out and make something of yourself and take these boxes with you. You got what you wanted, Mom. You made me independent, like the dentist elf in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special. Funny how time changes things. Now that you're all alone, you want me back all the time, as much as possible. I visit every two weeks, but you say it's not enough. You think my family's too busy. I think you don't remember what it's like to have one. You want what I can't give more of me. I want what you won't give, an apology. I've got good news for you, Mom. It just occurred to me that someday I'm going to reap what I sow. That's why I've decided I'm going to try a little bit harder to give you a little bit more of me. Thank you. Bye-bye. I am Charlotte Sneed with the Clarksburg uh, Critique Group and a member of West Virginia Writers. I am a local mentor mother for the MOPS, the Mothers of Preschoolers program, and this is a devotion from that ministry. As Mother's Day approaches, individuals have varied responses, and as a mentor mom for a Mothers of Preschool group, I realize some of us need to get over our mothers because our past experiences and wounds can impact our present performances. Our moms may have abused substances or suffered some mental handicap. Hopefully, as we mature, we can understand the forces that shape them, and we can find forgiveness that sets us free. We need other moms, healthier moms perhaps, who can mentor us and help us shape our own mothering. Some of us have wonderful mothers, excellent role models, but we feel we fail because we cannot replicate them. You have your own personality. You have your own husband and your own relationship, your own lifestyle together. As much as you love and appreciate your mother, you cannot be your mother. Your children need their own mother. In churches this month, we will hear sermons on Mother's Day. I remember when we heard the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. guess that's a clue to my age. Today's feminist culture has robbed mothers of finding our identification in rocking the cradle. Of course, life is more than babies and raising children, but mothers multiply our impact for good in this world by sending out emotionally healthy and academically prepared and morally trained children. That said, women must have a life beyond mothering. We live longer lives, and children will leave us. We haven't done our jobs well if they can't leave us. I, for one, however, am sad that mothers have abandoned the pedestal of blessed motherhood for equality. A mother can change an entire family. Certainly, we have a preeminent influence in the lives of our children. Child care professionals, educators, psychologists can't tell you more about your children than you know. You know their heritage. You know their roots. You share half their genes, and hopefully you live with the one that shares the other half. You are the expert on your kids. We can do many things, achieve many honors, but nothing is more rewarding than adult children who are our best friends. They have shared our history, suffered our mistakes, and chosen to accept and forgive us. It doesn't get any better than that. Hi, this is Kat Pluska calling from Putnam County. And I'd like to read you a little essay to tell you about my mother and her love of language. 
My mother loved language, and she had the courage to play with words. She'd make up a word to fit a situation where she felt one didn't exist. For example, the word compulsory, meaning forced to do something. Being a bit contrary, but respectful, she'd do it. But to express her attitude, she combined compulsory with contrary. She'd say, it's compulsory, meaning, I'll do it, buddy, but I won't like it. My mother loved others' language, especially Shakespeare. She was forever saying, I'd give my kingdom and my horse for a cold drink. Or if she and Dad had a set-to, she'd fling the back of her hand dramatically onto her troubled brow and declare, "'Tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune." Dad would stop, shake his head, and give up the fight. Quick with the accent, if she'd read a book with an old-fashioned Appalachian dialect, she'd spend days saying, "'There's nary a thing to eat in this here house.' Or maybe... It's going to rain. Or heaven help us if she just read a book about the Irish. Then for days we'd hear, Aaron go bra. Or if I asked her when dinner would be ready, she'd reply, It'll be not but a fortnight, missus. A fortnight? Okay, Mom. Do you really mean it'll be two weeks till dinner? Mom's playfulness with words inspired my love of language. And she was a fabulous role model for her habit of reading voraciously and widely. But the truth is, she was not able to go past ninth grade. Poverty drove her to quit school and go to work. But that didn't stop her from continuing to read, to learn, and maybe because no one told her she couldn't, she made language something special, something to be approached with a sense of humor. Mom passed away ten years ago but I like to think she is proud of the writer I have become, borrowing her courage to play with language on the page. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. As you always said, it is a goodly thing. This is Heidi Hartwiger. I grew up in Wheeling, and I currently reside in Yorktown, Virginia. My poem is West Virginia Women. I sing the songs of my women. Verses from Ballads, Dear Liza, Aunt Rhody, Hymns to the Cradle, Rocking and Crooning. I come to my garden in celebration, breathing slowly their scents, gardenia, lavender, honeysuckle, and rose. My mother, her mother, their mothers before them, their tears on my cheeks, their cycles of blood, their green eyes and temper, I am of them. Wrens pull at dry grasses. Dragonflies spread lacy wings on sun-drenched rocks. And I lift my face to the sun, close my eyes, press fingers deep in rich loam, my palms, my wrists, into dark comfort. Hi, I'm Linda Hudson Hoagland, and I live in Townsville, Virginia. And the, my Mother's Day story is called Surprise Package. And I'm the mother in the story. Mother's Day was going to be just another Sunday as Sonny and I celebrate alone without the pleasure of seeing either my eldest son, Mike, who works for Food Lion and is scheduled to work on my special day, or my youngest son, Matt, who lives in Nebraska, halfway across the country from our southwest Virginia home in Townsville. 
Matt hasn't been back home for a visit for almost five years, and due to money problems, I really don't expect to see him for another five years. Sonny, I'm going to cook a turkey for the two of us. How come? To celebrate Mother's Day, of course. Oh, yeah, I forgot, he replies sheepishly. I know, but don't worry about it. After all, you've always said that I'm not your mother. I am trying to hide the hurt I'm feeling deep inside. Now I really feel bad about not doing anything for you. But remember, I've been in the hospital for a week and I don't have any money, he says as he tries to come up with an excuse so that I would forgive him. I look at him and shrug as my mind tells me that it comes once a year, just like my birthday does each November. He has had a full year to get me a gift. I never forget him when his birthday and Father's Day comes along. Why does he always forget my special days of celebration? I should be happy about not having to sit at his bedside in the hospital on Mother's Day. He has a serious heart condition that is making no effort whatsoever to get better or go away for that matter. Things could be worse, I guess. At least that's the little bit of encouragement I always get from my coworkers. God knows I hate to hear that phrase repeated to me time and again. Again, I shrug. If I don't stop feeling sorry for myself, Mother's Day will only become a day of depression, like it usually does when my sons can't be with me. Forget about Sonny. I don't need a card or a gift. It's just a waste of time and money. We will eat our big dinner and have plenty of leftovers for the week, I say as I force a smile to crawl across my face. Saturday afternoon is filled with watching the NASCAR race on television. Sonny is a big NASCAR fan, whether it is the junior circuit called the Nationwide Race, the senior circuit known as the Sprint Cup, or the truck competition. It doesn't matter which one is showing, he will be watching it, or trying to, because he falls asleep at the drop of a hat. I make us dinner, and we settle ourselves for television, watching like we always do on a Saturday night. I'm crocheting an afghan as I sit in front of the television in my easy chair, and I have no doubt that Sonny has once again fallen asleep. The telephone rings and startles both of us. Mom? Matt, is that you? I ask, because sometimes his voice sounds different when he uses his cell phone. Yeah, it's me. How are you guys doing? Fine, honey. It's great to hear your voice, I say as I ponder the early phone call. I really expected him to call me tomorrow. Mom, did you get your package? What package? The one I sent you for Mother's Day. No. Wait. I'll ask Sonny. I turn my head towards my husband. Did I get a package? No, he responds as he tries to chase the sleepy sounds from his voice by clearing his throat. No, Matt, Pat, no, Matt, no package. Well, you need to open your front door and look outside. Your surprise package is on your porch. I run to the door and fling it open wide to see my son Matt and his girlfriend Becky, standing there waiting for the scream of pure joy that was going to be emitted from my heart, passing on to the outside for all the world to hear. Happy Mother's Day, Matt and Becky Young, unison. Oh, my God, Matt, Becky, I shout through the tears. This is the best Mother's Day present I could ever want to have. I say as I throw my arms around Matt and Becky, my wandering children. Mike said he will be over as soon as he gets off work, Mom. I will get to celebrate with both my sons. Nothing could be better than that. To this day, when I think about the surprise, joyful cheers run up and down my spine, causing me to smile broadly and savor the moment of happiness once again. It doesn't take much to make me happy. A real family gathering for a celebration will do the trick very nicely. Salvatore Batacci, Princeton, West Virginia.
My short nostalgic story is called Mama's Accent. In my early years, I was quite embarrassed by my mother's accent. Most of my friends in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York, had American parents who spoke the way I wanted my mother to speak. Even the Irish parents spoke with a brogue close to English, but my mother's brogue, more like broken, was a mix of Sicilian and English. Bacchiamo luplom meant go call the plumber. Girl was gel and boyfriend was boyfriend. See what I mean? My father had a slight accent. He'd lived in America since he was 15, and he worked with Americans and learned English from them. My mother was a housewife whose only talking companions were our Sicilian relatives who only spoke Sicilian. So I tried to keep my friends away from my mother. They'd ring the bell, and I'd walk down the two flights of our tenement building. One day, who knows why, the six of them climbed those flights and knocked on our door. Mama answered. Is Sal home, one of them asked. Please, come in, boys. Then calling for me, she said, Sal, your friends are day here. I led them into the TV room where we pitched baseball cards on the linoleum floor. About a half hour later, my mother walked in with a big dish of cookies she had just baked for us. Later outside, I was so afraid I'd have to defend my mother's honor when they began making fun of her accent. So finally, when nobody did, I said, my mother has an accent. And Joey Hogan said, so what? She makes great cookies. And Vinny Accardi said, I wish my mother was as friendly. Mine never has time for us. At that moment, I felt so proud of Mama, so guilty for being ashamed of her. Now, nearly 60 years later, not a day passes by that I don't thank God for sending me my life's greatest blessing, my mother. My name is Sandra Clay from Charleston, West Virginia. Um, my story is about my mother. Um, she is still living, but this is how I imagine her leaving this world. She's 91 and thought recently she was going to die. I pray it will be this peaceful. The title is, and I said goodbye. She is now 95. I said to my friend as he looked at the picture of the beautiful young woman on the front of the book he held, it's the story of my mother's life as she told it to me five years ago when she was sure she was dying. He was leaping through other pictures and interspersed through the pages. I was looking over his shoulder. She was really star beautiful, he shared. Still is, I said, taking a few steps away. A tear escaped from my eye and slid down my cheek. Turning, I left him to read the book while I went to sit at my mother's bedside. She was not aware I was there holding her hand. At least I did not think so, but who knows. My mother grew up in Greenberg County, a place called Sam Black Church. She lived on top of Slab Cat Mountain with her parents and 14 siblings. Her family members are buried close by as my father is. Soon my parents would lay side by side in death. Bertie Keyes, my mother's mother, was 13 when she married. She met her soon-to-be husband on the farm where she was living with her aunt and uncle who adopted her when her parents died. When they left for California searching for a better life, my grandmother chose to stay with their young farmhand. He had bought the farm and he had won her heart. The United States Census listed my grandfather as a farmer, owning his own land and debt-free. 
My mother, born in the early 1900s, was third youngest of 15 children belonging to the couple. When my grandmother was in her early 40s, she became a widow with full responsibility for many children. As I looked at my mother, lying peacefully in front of me, I thought of the hardships of war and the depression. I thought how difficult it must have been for them without her father. Mother described her life differently. She told me how they kept the milk, buttermilk, butter and eggs cold. There was a spring not too far from the house. In the center of an enlarged pond was a large sandstone. Her father had hewed out a box-like depression in that stone to hold their food. The cold water flowed into and over the food through a trough that he carved at one edge and out through another on the other side. A large flat rock served as a lid to keep the animals out and the jars of food in. They were very innovative. People talk of the Great Depression, I recall another saying. There was nothing great about it. We never went hungry, though. My mother knew how to raise food, how to can it, dry it, preserving what she raised. So we always went to bed with our bellies full. Many people walked up on their mountains for food to eat. There was an air of pride in her voice as she spoke of the strong woman who was her role model. The only time I remember being hungry was during a severe drought, she told me. We had cornmeal, but not much else to last for the entire winter. It was the first time that Mother had to depend on credit at the local store. She hated that. She usually traded for staples. She absolutely had to buy the things she could not raise on the farm. My own mother was only five at the time of her father's death. She told me that their house had burned and they rebuilt it twice, once after he had died. Mama left a brand new pair of shoes in the house when she went to help her older sister with her children. The only shoes that were not hand-me-downs to her burned with the house. They all lived in a shed over the cellar while the older brothers took felled trees to Raynell for milling. She said they resembled an ant colony working on their new house. Each of us had a role in rebuilding. We were quite proud of the finished project. Not much to look at by today's standard, but it was something very special to us, she said. It was great to be able to help our mother and ourselves, she added after a brief pause of reflection. We talked about the wonderful meals her mother prepared after spending her mornings in the garden before they were out of bed and before the sun made it unbearable to be there. We weren't allowed in her garden except to carry her water from the spring if she needed it. She took great pride in how she kept the road straight and clear of weeds, garments, and bugs and kids. Mother smiled as she visualized her mother bent over tending her plants. We climbed the trees, picked the fruit, helped her in the kitchen when it came time to can or dry the food and fruit. I loved to smell the apples cooking in the large kettles. We took turns stirring what was the apple butter in jars lined in the cellar before the end of the day. I loved everything about that except the burns from the boiling liquid as it popped out on me. It was an annual ritual and we all participated, she said. I can still taste the apple butter on her fresh biscuits. At that moment, my friend showed me a picture of my mother when she was a little girl. Her bowed legs evident. She was standing in the yard with the cellar in the background. That's where they lived as they rebuilt the house it burned, I explained. I then told him her, of her embarrassment because of the bowed legs. She hated to wear dresses, I remembered her saying as she pointed to her little bowed legs. She said she didn't get the right nutrition, didn't like milk, and blamed it on that. She also had a lazy eye and could not afford glasses to correct the problem, I explained. I picked up the thick glasses from the bedside table and held them gently as I recalled seeing her reading for hours. She would not be using them to read her romance stories again. He left the room. 
I sat there thankful for the woman before me. She had learned well from her mother, and I had learned from her. I would pass her story, her talents, knowledge, and determination on to my two young granddaughters. In time, perhaps, they too could understand their heritage and appreciate the character and strength that these two wonderful women, my grandmother and my mother, endowed to me, and then I, hopefully, on to them. As my mother had kissed my forehead so many times before tucking me into bed, I stood, smiled, bent over and kissed her forehead. It was at that second that I heard her softly sigh. I felt a cool breath of wind pass by me as a dim light seemed to slip through the open window and disappear upward and away from where I stood. Amazed, I smiled, sad, but with peace. I said goodbye to the woman I revered more than anything or anybody. Yes, my name is Tracy Seifers. I live in Charlestown, West Virginia, and I have a poem for Mother's Day. It was written in 1995 for my mother, Renee Pryor, um, for her 65th birthday then. She has... Uh, She passed in 2001, but she is still my hero. And that's the title of this poem, Hero. Brave woman, this adventurous, to take on such a life, to leave her home, her heritage, for a new face, a parade of babies, a proud and laughing man. Laughing, she birthed them, changed them, loved them, in the best way she knew. Was it enough? Look around, see the parade of babies changed indeed, together once more, looking to her, the hero of this story. Brave soul, this little woman, to take on the dragon, silently working to quiet her laugh, dim her smile, those, in fact, her only weapons. Were they enough? Look around, see her now, honored by her family, bearing proud scars, but her heart, unscarred, stronger, her soul, untouched, more beautiful. Brave heart, to pour her life into us, and then to let us go, trusting that her lessons, her love, would keep us safe. Were they enough? Look around. See that here we stand, her children. Brave enough for our own adventures, for we know that our center is here. It is her, our hero. I'd like to close today's show with a piece of my own, dedicated to three of the women who've served as surrogate mothers to me in my life. See, my actual mother died when I was four years old, shortly after my sister Allison was born. My dad then had the unenviable task of raising the two of us on his own, and even that almost didn't happen, which is... Kind of another tale for another time. Dad wasn't perfect, of course, but the older I get, the more clearly I can appreciate just how good a job he actually did in raising us, considering the enormity of the task before him. He did have a bit of help along the way. My maternal grandmother, Mamma, as we called her, served as the primary female figure in our lives, particularly to my sister, who lived with Mamma in Wayne County, Mississippi, for the first five years of her life. Mamaw was a tiny, soft-spoken woman who could transform into Dirty Harry in an instant should you dare track filth in her clean house. But she taught us valuable lessons, such as the need for bathing, even if the bath was taken in a tub on the back porch. She taught us that cow-fresh milk was not as evil as our cousin Amy proclaimed, and that Amy never even knew the difference if you poured it into a white plastic jug first. 
She taught us that you weren't finished until all the pink-eye purple hull peas in your basket had been shelled into the bucket, no matter how much you whined. She taught Sunday school and showed us the benefit of a devout life, even if she herself gave way to the occasional bit of gossip. She taught us that a plate of pan-fried steak with gravy and a side of rice, collard greens, black-eyed peas, and cornbread is still the best meal in the world. And through blazing hot summer afternoons holed up in the only air-conditioned room in the house, she taught me a love of serialized storytelling through second-hand ritual viewing of such soaps as Search for Tomorrow, As the World Turns and Guiding Light. Thank you, Mamma. My dad, during our formative years, dated a succession of other ladies who were candidates for the job of new mother, and only a couple of them fled screaming. The one who finally got the job, though, was hired on just as my sister and I were pretty much grown, but still in our awkward college years. Myra, our new stepmother, took about a year to really settle into the job, and we kicked her tires plenty good along the way. For instance, we somehow failed to mention to her that none of us were actually accustomed to having home-cooked sit-down meals every night, and we were pretty happy to fend for ourselves when it came to food. When we finally did let her know, six months into the job, She was relieved, because she herself was not accustomed to preparing them either. We quickly settled into a far more casual household after that. But Myra has always been there for us with sage advice on the avoidance of common pitfalls in our young adult paths, and continues to do so for our now lower-to-middle adult paths. Even though she came into the job late, she's been a wonderful mother, and has always treated us as though we were her own. And she's been a great and very complimentary wife to our father. A few years back, we were collectively devastated when we learned she'd been diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer. It's a stage of cancer you don't normally walk away from. However, she fought it diligently through chemotherapy, homeopathic therapy, and what we know to be the true power, the prayers of hundreds of people. Today, she's been in remission for three years and continues in good health. Thank you, Myra. The final mother figure I'd like to thank is my mother-in-law, Susie. She's one of the most amazing ladies I've known, and certainly a force to be reckoned with when she needs to be, traits I often see reflected in my wife, sometimes to my detriment. However, in her natural state, Susie is a kind and thoughtful soul who goes out of her way to help others, and is marvelous at reaching out to let the people she loves know she's thinking of them. She's also proven herself to be incredibly forgiving and understanding. For instance... Even when I proved myself to be a complete and utter goober when I once attempted to drive to North Carolina and missed on my first try, she took it in stride and still gave me permission to marry her daughter later. I always know that when I can't get back to Mississippi to see my own family, I have a mother in a nearby state who will make me biscuits and gravy and always lets me know she loves me and is proud of me. Thank you, Ma. And with this, we conclude MomCast 2010. I'd like to thank everybody who phoned in their memories of their mothers, both sweet and sour, for we all know that moms are both. Since the hotline idea works so well for these recorded live readings, I'll keep it open for future submissions. Not necessarily ones on a theme, but just if you happen to have a poem or a short, short story, you can give us a call at 304-661-9745. I get enough of them. We'll do another show featuring your material. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker. 
whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. And who, by the way, is going to be playing live on June the 12th at the 2010 West Virginia Writers Summer Conference along with special guest Kippen Martin. We have all the information about the summer conference, including workshop presenters, workshop descriptions, and how to register for pitch sessions with the editors and agents who will be there. It's all at our website, wbwriters.org slash conference.html. And be sure to check out a certain someone's podcasting workshop on schedule for Friday, June 11th. This podcast has been produced by Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded atop a hill in Mercer County.